Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we open up the Bible to continue our ongoing look at the New Testament book of Revelation, the Bible's most famous slash infamous book, we're in chapter 18 this morning. I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn them to Revelation chapter 18. And while you're doing so, I think a fitting way to lead into this morning's message is to recall that four years ago, a professional tightrope walker, yes, there actually are such things, Believe it or not, this is America. You can do anything, okay? A professional tightrope walker pulled off a stunt, many of you may remember this, of walking across the Grand Canyon on a tightrope. Uh, technically, it was actually just outside the Grand Canyon, but we'll let that pass, okay? That's not, the, that's not the main point. The point is the guy actually did it. So they strung this two-inch-long steel cable across this gorge over the little Colorado River, and he got out there, and he walked a quarter mile over, over four football fields on this two-inch steel cable over a gorge that dropped down essentially another quarter mile, 1,500 feet straight down. And he walked it on a two-inch tightrope, not tethered to anything. He was wearing a camera on his chest that was pointing straight down. Here's a shot from it right in the middle uh, of his journey. You can see 1,500 feet straight down. There's the cable he's walking on and the river. So it's not that bad. You know, if you fall, you'll land in the water, so you'll be okay, right? <laughs> Crazy, okay? Now, to pull this off, uh, he certainly had, as all tightrope walkers do, a little bit of help. This is a shot of him partway across the span, and, and you notice he's carrying that big balance pole, that thing was 43 pounds. It was heavy. You can see it drooping on the ends by its own weight, which is part of the point of it. Uh, for those of you more physics-minded people, that pole does a couple of things for him. It, it helps uh, increase what physicists would call his rotational inertia. Modern, real English. That makes it harder for him to wobble over. <laughs> if you start to lean to one side, you have, it's much slower, so you have more time to react. And the other thing it does is it lowers the center of gravity so that you're actually less likely to wobble. So that's what really enables a guy like him to do what he did. And I'm happy to report he made it, okay? <laughs> he did make it. He survived the trek and made it all the way across this thing in like 22 or 23 minutes that it took him to walk that 14 or 1,500 feet over that gorge. Put that on the list of things that I am super excited to watch other people attempt. But balance pole or no balance pole, I ain't doing that. <laughs> and most of us probably aren't either. Except we kind of do this sort of thing. We, we, we actually do participate in this sort of thing as Christians all the time. We just don't do it on literal steel cables over literal uh, canyons. But in essence, this is a fitting picture of what the 18th chapter of the book of Revelation is really all about. This is a good word picture of what it's, it's driving us toward. Uh, we're in the middle of a three-chapter kind of mini-series. We mentioned chapters 17, 18, and 19. Uh, I mentioned this last week. They all sort of go together. Chapter 17 sort of sets the stage, as it were. Uh, John, the, uh, the author who is writing this, gets this image. Uh, he sees this vision of, of a woman who's identified as a prostitute, which is then connected with the Babylonian Empire, which is ultimately connected with the Roman Empire of John's day. We kind of covered all that last week. And she's writing on the back of this seven-headed beast who we had seen before, which represents Satan's power in earthly kingdoms to oppose the gospel. So that was chapter 17. Now, this morning, chapter 18, that, that just kind of set the stage. We're just introduced to these two characters, these two images. 
Chapter 18 is a bunch of prophetic announcements modeled on the Old Testament prophets about what's going to happen. And then chapter 19, the drama carries out on the stage, and we'll see that next week. So chapter 18, we see these prophetic announcements about the ultimate destruction of this godless world order given by God, modeled after that of the Old Testament prophets. If you're in Revelation chapter 18, let's start in and just read the first few verses so we can see how it carries on the story and begins to set the stage for what comes next. Revelation 18 verse 1 says this, after this, that is after the image of the woman on the beast, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, this is a heralding angel making an announcement, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit and a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. So I heard another voice from heaven saying, this now addressed to God's people, come out of her, my people. Remember, her is actually a city, it's an empire. Come out of her, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she has herself paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her and the cup that she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen and I am no widow. Mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. Death, mourning, and famine, she will be burned with fire, for mighty is the Lord who has judged her. This whole chapter is a series of, of laments, of dirges, as it were, announcements of the impending destruction of this woman who is identified as Babylon, who John said in the first century was really the Roman Empire in the day and age in which he lived. And it also represents every godless human society since. And this is an announcement of the final judgment and destruction of that city modeled after the Old Testament prophets. Uh, there are so many examples of this. If you just look briefly back at verse 2, uh, that is almost a direct quote of two different places in the book of Isaiah, where at one point the prophet Isaiah, who was writing 600 years earlier, when the Roman Empire didn't exist yet, and the Babylonian Empire was actually literally in charge of the world at the time, God says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And then John grabs another quote from much later in Isaiah, and he puts them together into this sort of new announcement. And so the point of this is you see this over and over again. All of these announcements in chapter 18 are uh, modeled on the Old Testament prophets. Now, the, the really interesting thing is they're modeled in the time when the real Babylonian empire was in power. In fact, Babylon was at the height of its power. If you know your Old Testament history, the ancient Israelites had already been conquered by the Babylonians. Uh, Jerusalem had been destroyed. The Jewish temple had been annihilated. The Babylonians were responsible for the slaughtering of thousands of Jews and the total dismantling of the Jewish way to worship God. And they had hauled off the survivors who were now living as second-class citizens and slaves in the city of Babylon. Babylon's at the height of its power. And through the prophet Isaiah, God says, it's doomed. 
Well, it sure didn't look doomed when he said that. It was the mighty world empire. Nobody could challenge the Babylonians. Until actually a surprisingly short time later, just a few decades later, uh, the Persian Empire arose and crushed the Babylonians and utterly wiped them out. The Babylonian Empire never again reestablished itself in all of human history. Now, John is applying that same Old Testament promise to modern-day Rome in his day, that is the first century, 600 years later. Rome, too, is at the height of its power. The Romans looked and seemed invincible, but their destruction is assured, God is saying. It took another 300 years for Rome to fall, but fall it did. Now, what's the point of all of this? No matter how wealthy and powerful and dominant any current world empire appears, it is ultimately doomed. Those who do not repent will face God's judgment. Now, why is this important? There's really three points to this chapter, and they all flow naturally. That's the first one. The current anti-God world system, the Bible says, is ultimately doomed. And that's important because... Those who put their hope in it and build their lives on it will suffer the same fate. Those who put their hope in it and build their lives on it will suffer the same fate. The chapter goes on now and it shifts gears and, and it starts looking at um, the merchants, people who became rich and powerful by tying uh, their, their, their destinies, hitching their wagons, so to speak, to the star of the world system. Oh, sure, maybe it's godless. Oh, sure, maybe it, it has some very anti-biblical morals, but you just have to get along. You have to accept some of that to just get along in the world, and if you do, they become rich and powerful. But then look at verse 15. The merchants of these wares, many of the things that were listed back up earlier in verses 12 and 13, who gained wealth from her will stand off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid to waste. And on and on it goes. It's picturing people who made their living by doing business with the Roman Empire and therefore accepting its terms and adhering to its worldview. And they got rich as a result in the short term. But in the long term, what happens when God takes the whole empire down? Well, if, you're, if you hitched your wagon to that star and that star falls, what happens to you? You get pulled right down with it. You invest in a house of cards. When the cards collapse, you're done for. This is a picture of those who went all in to derive wealth and power and joy from a sinful world system, only to see it all go up in smoke when that, that world system does. We actually kind of know what this is like, even in the modern day. Quick show of hands. When I say the word Enron, how many of you know what I'm talking about? Just real quick. Okay, yeah, hands all over the place, just as I expected. Some of us are like, ah, I don't get it. But a whole lot of us are like, yeah. Now, had I said the word Enron back in 1995, how many hands would still be up? A couple. <laughs> By the way, my hand would have to go down at that point because I had never heard of them either. Enron was a giant um, uh, energy company and got involved in other um, uh, investment trading and so forth. It became one of the hottest stocks at the end of the 90s. Uh, by the year 2000, everyone wanted to invest in Enron stock, and its price peaked at uh, over $90 a share. 
But many of you know the name because you know the story. The short version of the long and, and gruesome story is that there were lots of uh, account, accounting shenanigans and uh, cooking of the books, as they say, to hide the real financial weaknesses of the company to encourage more and more investment. But as all of those things do, eventually the thread starts pulling and the whole the seam comes undone and the whole thing collapses like a house of cards. And that's exactly what happened. The year 2000, they were trading at $90 a share. By 2001, it was down to a dollar per share. Now, you don't even have to be a financial guru to understand that billions of dollars of wealth was almost overnight just wiped out. And it wasn't just the wealth of, of people who like worked for Enron. It was the wealth of millions of Americans because so much of that money was tied up in mutual funds and retirement accounts that average Americans had worked for years to build up. And they just, their value nosedived. We had people in our church here at Harvest who lost huge portion of their retirement accounts. Uh, I remember one guy who actually worked in an energy, not for Enron, but he worked in, an, in, in the energy field. And so his retirement was even more invested than maybe most of us in energy uh, companies. And when that crash happened, he ended up having to work several more years, as did his wife, beyond their planned retirement because they had to try to make up some of the losses. Huge personal impact. And we all know the name Enron because it hit us in the pocketbook, right? You invest in something that's going down, and what happens? When it goes down, you feel the pain. You go down with it. That's what's being pictured here in Revelation 18. Now, people invested in Enron in good faith. They didn't know what was about to happen. They didn't know how bad it really was. But what if, back in early 2000, when everybody wanted to be in, some time traveler came back and said, can I show you the financial headlines from next year? Here it is. And if you knew for sure what was coming, what would you do with your money? Any sane person's going to get out, right? Get out of there. You don't want to go down with that ship. Well, that's what Revelation is telling Christians. God doesn't have to be a time traveler because he sees it all anyway. And what he's saying is the system you're building your life on is going down in flames. If you hitch your wagon to that star, you're going down with it. So therefore, third point, First point, it's doomed. Second point, those who attach themselves to it will be doomed too. So therefore, third point, don't build your life on it. Don't build your life on this system. Look again at verses 4 and 5. Quoting again from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins and share in her plagues. For her doom is sure, it goes on. Her iniquities are piled as high as heaven. God will surely judge come out from her. The Bible is calling uh, God's people to disassociate themselves from the Babylon of their day, which for the original readers was the ancient Roman Empire. You're in it, you live among it, many of you as Christians are even Roman citizens, but disassociate yourselves from it because you don't want to get caught up in those sins because those sins will be judged and you will be too if that's what you've invested in once the house of cards collapses. Now, what did it mean to come out of Rome? It didn't mean to literally, geographically move out of the boundaries of the Roman Empire. That's not how first century Christians would have taken that, and that's not how they did take it, nor is that how John, the Apostle John, meant it when he wrote this. And we know that, first of all, because there's really nowhere else for them to go. I mean, had they left Rome, they could have gone up into modern-day Europe, but that was just known as sort of the, the uh, ancient Germanic barbaric, barbarian tribes. That was not a society that was well-regulated and God-loving. 
They could have headed east and south toward India or Arabia and, and, and been part of those societies, but it would have been the same deal. They would have been foreigners living in foreign lands that also had fairly godless governments that did not worship the God of the Bible. So clearly the Bible's not saying you have to physically remove yourselves from this place because it is so pagan or so godless. What it ultimately is getting at, as it has often been said, is it's a call for Christians to be in the world, but not of the world. As you are living in this kind of a society that is sure to be judged by God, don't adopt the worldview and the values and the lifestyle and the dreams of that society because you are actually a citizen of a greater kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. Now here, and this gets us back to the tightrope deal. And some of you immediately are already like, yeah, I get it. That's, that, there's a tension there, isn't it? It is um, a very artfully uh, put together phrase to say that Christians are supposed to be in the world, not of it. That flows off the tongue really nice. It preaches well. It lives really hard. Like, how do you, how do, you do that? Practically and really well. How do I be in the world and not of it? The Bible points us in both directions. Let's think for just a minute, sort of biblically, how the Bible unpacks this idea, not only in Revelation 18, but in many other places as well. First of all, the idea of being in the world. God's people are constantly taught to engage with their societies, wherever they find themselves, in any culture, in any point in history. Not to abandon or all due respect to our Amish friends, not to completely separate yourselves from the system of the world in which you live. A couple really interesting examples of this. Speaking of the Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah is another Old Testament prophet running around about the same time Isaiah was. So the Babylonians had conquered the Israelites and, and, and the Israelites, God's people, were in exile in Babylon, this incredibly pagan, totally godless society. And interestingly, in Jeremiah chapter 29, God says to his people, Jeremiah was fighting against a false prophet who was running around, and the false prophet was telling the Israelites, he's a Jewish false prophet, and he was telling the Israelites, hey, God's going to wipe the Babylonians out. Within two years, we're going back to Jerusalem, so get ready to move. He's like, sell all your possessions, get ready to move, because within two years, we're going to head back to Jerusalem. And God's like, I'd never said that. I never said that. I'm going to judge Babylon, but not that soon. And so instead, God says through Jeremiah, contradict that guy, you, Jeremiah, go tell my people, don't sell all your stuff. In fact, settle in. Settle in. Get jobs. Work. Participate in the economy. Uh, marry and, give your ch and have children. Give your children in marriage to one another. Start families. I mean, be a part of the world in which you live. And then interestingly, in verse 7, Jeremiah 20 and verse 7, God says, essentially, work for the success of the city in which I have placed you. Because in its success, you will find success. Here's the crazy thing. What city was God talking about? Babylon. The most godless empire, the empire that had slaughtered Jews and massacred the temple of God, totally profaned it. You couldn't think of a more godless empire. They were so godless, they became a metaphor for centuries and centuries later of every world system that stands against God. And God says, as you live there, work for the success of that society. So clearly, God says, as Christians, you're supposed to be in the world and, and, and involved in the world. 
Jesus in Matthew 13, verse 33, uses the analogy of uh, what he called leaven. We would call it yeast today, where he says that the kingdom of God is like leaven spread into a lump of bread dough. And as the yeast works its way through the dough, as, as it's being kneaded, it, 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 it influences the whole lump of dough and causes it all to rise. He says that's a picture of, of how the gospel spreads. My people engage in the societies and the communities in which they live, and through them, the gospel spreads throughout a society. That presupposes that there is engagement. You don't pull away, you engage. And in these and many other ways, the Bible is telling Christians, engage. Be in the world. On the other hand, on the other hand, we're also told, in so many words, not to be of the world. Consistently called to live out the values of Jesus Christ and his kingdom, not the values of the secular society and or false religious society in which we may live. Over and over and over again. Again, just a couple of many, many examples we could use. Um, in First Peter chapter 2, the Bible refers to Christians as exiles. Think of yourselves as exiles on the earth, meaning no matter what society you're in, whether it's the first century Roman Empire or the 21st century America. No matter what nation or society you're a part of, if you're a Christian, you're in exile. You know what a more modern, uh, rough equivalent to the word exile would be? Refugee. Think of yourself as a refugee. You've been driven out of your actual homeland, and one day you're hoping to return, but now, for whatever reason, you can't, and so you're living in a foreign country where you don't belong. And yes, you're going to be there. You may even be there for a while, but, but you don't take on the values of that culture. You don't become one of those people because you're from a different place and you're going to return to that place. The Bible says, look at refugees. That's a good model, Christian, for how you're to understand your participation in, for us, American society. How at home do I feel here? The Bible says, if I'm too comfortable with my cross, or with my uh, flag, rather, and my constitution and my American values, if it's too homey, I've got a problem. I've got a problem because this place is not my home. And the values of the kingdom of Christ will contradict the values of every society in human history somewhere. It'll be at a different place in different cultures because different cultures have such different value systems. But God's word, the values of Christ's kingdom will contradict the values of every society somewhere, including our society. And especially at those points, the Bible says, live as exiles. Don't live out the values of the world around you. Again, the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 5.20, calls us a different word picture, ambassadors. Ambassadors. We know what an ambassador is. They had ambassadors back in the ancient world. We still have them today in the modern world. An ambassador is one who is sent from his home country, his or her home country, to a foreign country where they live full-time amongst the foreigners, but they are explicitly representatives of their home country and the values and, and the agenda and, 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 uh, of their own government, not the values and agenda of the government in which they live. The Bible says, again, Christian, it's a great word picture for how you're to think of yourself. You live in your current society, whether it's Babylon or Rome or America, and yet you represent the values, not of that society, but of a totally different kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So don't be of the world 
commenting on Revelation chapter 18, um, theologian Greg Beale, I think helpfully says this, to be of the world means that we have compromised our values in order to share in the world's present wealth and advantages, but at the cost of also inheriting a share in its coming judgment. That's what it means to be of the world. We've compromised Christ's values in order to find success in the world in which we live, but with the result that we will also inherit a share of judgment. That's what Revelation 18 is warning Christians against. So we feel this tension. It's all over the Bible. As a Christian, no matter what society you live in, ours is no exception, we're walking a tightrope. Now, how do, you, how, how do you avoid falling off one side or the other? How do you avoid being so condescending toward your culture that you totally disengage and then you're no good as a gospel witness versus becoming so enmeshed in your culture that you look just like them and so you're no good as a gospel witness? How do we do that? It's, it's immensely difficult. It is every bit as hard as it is walking a quarter mile with 30 mile an hour winds across a two inch steel cable over a quarter mile drop. It's impossible unless we get some help. As we think about how to take the message of this chapter, the godless culture we live in is doomed. Everyone who hitches their wagon to that star will be doomed too, so don't do it. We need to be in the world, not of it. As we think about what that looks like, practically speaking, it starts to get very complex because there's literally thousands and thousands of different scenarios that we all find ourselves in in which we have to apply it. So rather than picking up every individual thing and saying, well, here's how it looks, here's how it looks, let me suggest a couple of scriptural, scripturally informed um, principles, questions that help us as Christian people think through how to approach being in the world yet not of the world. Uh, first, we need to recognize that it is a complex uh, set of instructions to carry out. The tension between these things is very real. There are situations, many of them in fact, where it's super clear where, that our society is at odds with the Bible, and there's really not a lot of debate. There's a lot, not a lot of nuance. It's not hard to figure out what God wants. Uh, simple example, am I free to, as a Christian, uh, simply divorce my husband or my wife uh, because they no longer please me? I'm not in love with them anymore. This isn't fun anymore. Our culture has a very clear message about that. Yes, you're free to, at a minimum. In fact, you probably should at some level if you've tried hard to make things work, whatever that means, and you're just convinced this is not the right person for you anymore. Be done. Nobody should have to be married to somebody they don't want to be married to. That's the values of our society. It's probably not a surprise to most of us that the Bible's answer is very, very different. God has a completely different understanding of what marriage is and how it functions than our society has. Two totally different value systems. Which one as a Christian am I supposed to live out? Not hard to figure out. It may be hard to do, but it's not hard to understand. Sometimes it's very clear what God is calling me to when it's different than what my culture would suggest. So there's a lot of circumstances that are clear. On the other hand, on the other hand, there's a lot that aren't quite that clear at first, certainly, and sometimes even when you look closer. Certain ethical considerations that Christians have and questions we ask, and we're not always sure where the lines are drawn. For example, is it okay for a Christian to buy products from a company 
that has gone on record as advocating values that are totally contradictory to Scripture. These days, many CEOs get cornered or, or for various uh, social and, and business reasons, they feel like they need to make public statements about things that have nothing to do with their business, cultural values. And, and many of these companies go on record as saying, we stand behind this particular agenda and that agenda is totally contrary to Scripture. Once a company has gone on record, am I as a Christian obligated to stop buying products from them? Must I boycott their products? If I don't, am I helping to fund a godless world system? Am I too complicit in it? Well, maybe. But you see, it's a lot harder to draw a direct line from here's what the Bible teaches to here's what I should do in a case like that. We could go on with many, many others. Now, speaking of the Bible and drawing lines from what it teaches to how we should act, the Bible does acknowledge that such more difficult kinds of situations exist. Probably the best known one in the New Testament uh, was an issue that first century Christians were wrestling with that the details are like nothing we experience. This seems totally foreign to us because it is. Uh, There was a huge kerfuffle in a lot of first century churches uh, over whether Christians could in good conscience buy and eat meat that had previously been sacrificed to a pagan idol. Has that been an ethical dilemma for any of you lately? <laughs> Not the kind of details we face in America, but it doesn't, you don't have to think too hard about it to understand the issues there, and the issues actually are pretty common. I know, here's the thing, just the, the nature of the way a lot of the economy and the society works, people would bring uh, often food and grain or meat or whatever to their, their temples and sacrifice, you know, offer the meat as sacrifices to idols, and, and some of that meat would end up um, getting back out on the market. I mean, it was still perfectly good meat, and it wouldn't be, you know, used in the temple for whatever reasons, and so it would just be sent out in the meat market, and people could later then just go buy it and eat it so, you know, they could have stew for dinner, right? Well, That created a bit of a conundrum for first century Christians. Wait a second, what if I'm in the market and here's this meat that I'm choosing from and I'm going to buy some of it to take home for dinner, but I know, because I know my society, that a good portion of this meat probably came from a worship service where it had been dedicated as an object of worship to a pagan idol. Now, there's nothing more clear in Scripture than Christian, don't worship idols. You couldn't be more clear than that. Worship God and God alone. Don't worship false gods. Idolatry is one of the most consistently railed against sins in the entire Bible. But how do you draw a straight line from that to whether or not I should buy this meat? Well, that created a huge problem. There were a lot of Christians that felt like, hey, back in the first century, I can buy it at a meat market. That doesn't mean I'm participating in the worship of that idol. I mean, whatever the original owner did with it was between him and his own God or whatever, but here here it is in the market, and it's just meat. I'm free. I know I'm a Christian. I'm not participating in the worship of the idol. I'm free to buy this and take it home and cook it and eat it, and we're fine. Whereas other Christians were saying, hey, not so fast. Not so fast. If you fund through your purchase this system that continues to use idol sacrifices as a core part of the economy, you are just continuing to enable this pagan, uh, godless culture. If you take your Christian faith seriously, you need to separate yourself economically a little bit more. You need to boycott meat that was sacrificed to idols. And on, they would go back and forth and back and forth, and Christians were debating. That's why it shows up in the Bible. Many of the biblical authors had to weigh in on this issue. And in a nutshell, what does the Bible say about it? Well, two things, very simply. First, follow your conscience. 
Second, don't judge other people who come to a different conclusion. First, follow your conscience. Um, if you believe that in good conscience you cannot participate in that, then don't. Like, then you shouldn't. On the other hand, if you feel before God that you're perfectly, I'm not worshiping the idol, I'm just buying meat, and like you've prayed about it, and you've thought about it, and you feel good about it, then fine, go ahead and do it. So first, on an issue like this, if you're taking the Bible seriously, then at some level, let your conscience be your guide, because it's not super clear how the principle leads to an action. Secondly, don't judge one another who come to differing conclusions. So don't sit there as a person who says, I feel fine with this, and look down your noses at all these Christians that have a big problem with it and say, they're so stupid, they're so legalistic, they're so immature, I'm so much better than that, which is where our hearts go, right? Because we're prideful. The Bible says, well, now you have committed a sin, and it had nothing to do with meat. <laughs> it has to do with your attitude toward your brother. But the sin can be committed in reverse. If I don't feel like in good conscience I can participate in that, then I'm going to say, I'm not going to participate in it, but you do, and you call yourself a Christian? How could you? You know, it's a huge issue for me. It's not for them. And so pretty soon now I'm looking down my nose at them. They don't take their Christian faith seriously as I do. And on and on you go. You see, both parties had a problem and it didn't have anything to do with meat. It had to do with arrogance and judgmentalism. So what's the point of all this? Many issues are clear and they're non-negotiable. It's obvious. Don't overcomplicate something that's really simple. Other issues are less clear. Don't oversimplify something that's a little complicated. How do you navigate the difference between the two? Well, that's the subject for not only one, but probably about 20 sermons, so we're not going to answer all of that this morning. But in the spirit of what we're doing this morning, let me suggest at least one thing, and, and hence the title up here, Learn What's Best. Um, what is the best approach, and how do I learn that? Well, clearly through prayer, through studying the Bible, but also through inviting counsel from trusted, godly Christian men and women that I know and I trust, and I feel comfortable enough to lower my guard a little bit and say, can I get your, let me get your take on something? Here's an ethical situation I'm wrestling through. Here's the issues I see. Here's the decision. I'm not sure where to draw the line, but here's the decision I've made. And here's kind of where I draw the line in my Christian faith. What do you think about that? What do you think about that? I'm not saying I'm going to change it if you disagree with me. I'm just, I'm saying, I'm actually inviting you because I know you and I trust you and I know you're on my side. I'm inviting you to give me your perspective on that. Do you see any concerns with that? Do you see any problems with that? Do you think it's great? What, what do you think? You see, the very act of opening myself up to another Christian, even though one that I know and, and, and trust, is sort of humbling, isn't it? Which is the whole point, because remember the sin in both cases was arrogance and pride. That's the sin you're trying to undermine. And the best way to do that is to be humble. Open myself up to other people and say, this is where I draw the line. What do you think? And then be honest in here. Well, I can see what you're saying, but uh, that kind of concerns me. What do you think about that? Well, here's what I think about it, I guess. And whether my perspective changes or not, I'm probably in a much better place. Now, we talked about that a fair bit last Sunday, so I won't say much more about that. We made a, a lot of emphasis last Sunday on inviting Christian counsel into decisions that we make. So that's on our website, that sermon. If you missed it, I'd urge you back there. Let me not say much more about that today because there's one other point I want to suggest that comes right out of what's being said here that we haven't addressed yet. Addressed yet. Not only learn what's best, but love what's best. Love what's best. And this is so important in navigating this tension between being in the world and not of it. J. 
John, the apostle, is the author of the book of Revelation. He also authored a couple of other letters in the New Testament. One of the other letters he authored, far less symbolic imagery in it, but the same truths are taught, is the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17 say this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. Do you see how familiar this sounds to the message of Revelation 18? And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. A couple of quick comments about this that relate to our passage this morning in Revelation 18 by way of applying, of figuring out how to live this message. First of all, notice that both in Revelation and outside of it, the Bible is constantly dividing everything into one of two camps. As the book of Revelation is sort of peeling back the curtain so that we can see the spiritual reality behind the world in which we live, what it's showing us over and over and over again is there's only two camps. In Revelation, you either have um, the prostitute or you have the bride. Both of them, these images of women, picture a group of people. There is those who sell out on God and those who follow God. You have two cities. You have Babylon and you have Jerusalem, the city of God. You either have the mark of the beast or you have the mark of the lamb. Over and over again, the imagery is saying you're in one camp or the other. And that's not just a revelation thing. John just did it here in 1 John. Don't love the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You either love the world or you love the Father. It's black and white. And let's be honest, that grates on us, doesn't it? Does that bother you? At least a little bit? If you were raised in this country, I can almost guarantee that it does. Because we're taught to see everything in shades of gray. Because we're pluralistic and postmodern and we don't like definitive, clear statements of truth. We just recoil against it because we believe in one definitive truth and that is that there is no definitive truth. Yeah, that gets a little circular, but that's in the subject for another day. Here's the point. When there's this constant division you see in the Bible of it's black or it's white, you're the for God or against him, it's like, come on. And there's part of us that just goes, "Mm, I don't like that. Friends, that reaction is precious. Here's why I say it's precious. Because when I react that way, I just found a spot where my life is more shaped by my culture than it is by God's word. When something that God repeatedly and clearly insists upon over and over again produces a negative reaction in me, I just found somewhere where I need to become more like Jesus. That's golden. Submit that reaction to the Lord. We mentioned that the Bible is the product of God rather than any human culture. And so we mentioned earlier that the Bible is going to confront every human culture somewhere. And it will confront different cultures in different places. This is one of the places that it confronts our culture. If we're Christians, we should let it. But here's the other thing to notice about this. John keeps using the word love. He doesn't say believe this or that with God and not the world. He doesn't say live this or that with God and not the world. He says love God, not the world. And if you love the world, you don't love God. He keeps using the word love. The Bible isn't just addressing our theology here and our beliefs, our rational beliefs, although that's part of it, but but there's a lot more going on here. 
The Bible is addressing what we really love. Another way to say that is the Bible is addressing our hopes and our dreams. What makes you go, yeah? That's pretty close to what you love, according to the Bible. Is it your family? Is it your career? Is it your stuff? What makes you just go, yeah, that's what we love? That's what the Bible is talking about here. Don't put your, yeah, in the things that the world can provide because they're ultimately doomed. The promises that the world makes are ultimately empty, even if for a little while things can seem pretty good. It's ultimately empty because the world can't deliver on its promises because in the end the world will be judged and condemned by God. So don't fall in love with it. Don't build your life on that house of cards. The dream house, the perfect relationship, meeting Mr. or Ms. Wright, having a family and grandkids, the ideal career, the sweet income, none of these things ultimately can satisfy. They hold out the promise that they will, but they're doomed in the end, so don't fall in love with them. Instead, John says, fall in love with Jesus. Not just in what you believe, although that's part of it, not just in what you identify yourself with, although that's getting a lot closer, but what you ultimately love. Because you see, when you love the gospel more than anything else in this life, it becomes a lot easier to navigate the tension of being in the world, not of it. Think about this in a couple of ways. What is lovely about the gospel of Jesus? First of all, the love of God himself as expressed for us in the gospel. That God would condescend to become a finite human being in Jesus Christ. And even more than that, to go through suffering and death like he did on the cross for us to a group of people who had absolutely nothing to bring to the table. Nothing. Before the Bible says we were even around to ask for God's mercy, he was already there providing it for us. Not only did we not deserve it, we hadn't even asked for it. So we brought nothing to the table and he sacrifices everything. That's love. If the gospel is true, then you are more loved than you ever dared hope was possible. And that love doesn't come from your mother or your father or your husband or your wife or your kids. It comes from God Almighty. Let that soak for a while and see if that doesn't resonate your heart in terms of falling in love with the gospel. Think also on the results of the gospel, the promise of eternal life and the eternal joy that never wears out and it never gets old. We're actually going to see that depicted next week in chapter 19, so I'll close with this to sort of set us up for next week. The reality of eternal life is the promise of joy that never wears out and never gets old. You know, that's one of the worst things about life in this world is that even the best things are always kind of tainted and messed up. And in the end, even if things stay really good for a while, you get used to them and they're just not as exciting anymore. Ever experienced that? That dream car that you just couldn't, you know, you were so excited you had it, and then 10 years later, it's just on the trash heap, right? Like stuff wears out, it's just not exciting anymore. The promise of heaven is that it never gets old. It's constantly deeper joy and satisfaction in the presence of God, unexhaustible. 
because no sermon is complete without a C.S. Lewis quote. I want to read this from him. He put this so artfully. His uh, Narnia series that so many of us know about, the first one that he wrote was Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There's actually seven books in that series. Um, the final book is called The Last Battle, and at the very end of that book, if you've not read it, he starts to picture all the characters, both in the fictional land of Narnia and in the real world, who have met, and they're now entering eternity. And here's how he put this. For us... Lewis writes, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they did live happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one that came before. What a beautiful picture of eternal joy in heaven. Friends, if the gospel is true, that's what's before you because God loves you. You let your heart soak in that for a while. And as the old hymn says, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now, what does this have to do with living in the world and not of it? Everything. Everything. Because if you go back to that tightrope walker, He's got that big, long pole that makes it possible for him to teeter on that knife's edge of a, of a tightrope. And friends, the love of God is that balance pole for you and me. The love of God is our balance pole. Let me put it to you this way. You show me a Christian who is determined to skate as close to God's line as possible in this life without technically crossing over it and who is bent on justifying every decision he or she makes even if they actually can be justified. If you show me a Christian whose heart is oriented that way, I will show you a Christian who is bound to blow it navigating this tension sooner or later. On the other hand, you show me a Christian who has never quite managed to get over the gospel. They just never get over it. It's just, it's never old. It constantly ceases to blow them away. The love of God expressed in the gospel and the eternal hope that we have. A Christian who exists in a perpetual state of shock and awe at the love of God. And I will show you a Christian who will far more often than not succeed in how he or she lives in the world without being of it. But that presupposes that we love God more than anything. That's where this book is driving us. That's where Revelation is driving us. And friends, may that be true of the members of our church. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you for the matchless love that words... Um, struggle to even do the, the least bit of justice to. And I'm only grateful that it's not my words that are the power to change people. It is your spirit. And so I pray, Spirit of God, that you would use the words you have written in the Bible to transform each one of our hearts. Father, so many members of our church wrestle to live in the world and not of it, every one of us. And so many of us would yearn to live out your purposes for us 
It is a tense balancing act. But I pray that the perspective you've given us through Revelation and so many other scriptures and the love that you have shown us would utterly drive who we are, define our identity and our destiny so that we could be confident you will navigate us through and you will use us to impact the world around us for Christ. So be glorified in us even now as we sing. Father, I pray that you would embrace us and allow us to more fully embrace you. In Christ's name, amen. As we've just uh, been talking,